to another episode of Let's Hope the Weather Holds. Today I talk to Simon Ritson, who founded the New Zealand-based PracMed, a company that teaches Stop the Bleed, some backcountry medicine response and more. Uh, we chat about his days in the military, work in disaster zones, and ideas about stopping bleeding. Um, we neglected to talk about long-distance shooting and hunting, which I now regret. But yeah, maybe the day will come and talk about it. So... That's it. Let's go. I saw you was at Stop the Bleed. Yeah, yeah. Good to uh, good to catch up again, obviously. And yeah, thank you for having us here on the podcast. Did you always feel you want to go to the army? Uh, did it just happen? <laughs> did you have dad in the army? Like my father was in the army twenty six years. Mm. So you know, how did that come about? Yeah, sure. So. Um, uh, I guess starting from the start. So when, when I was quite young, uh, I'd made a decision to uh, join the military. Um, I'd had a number of family members who had served uh, previously and whatnot. Uh, but I remember walking into the uh, local district council library uh, and seeing a photo of a soldier in the front of the book and my mind was just set from there that's what I wanted to do I was like that's pretty cool so you want to uh, look awesome and oh yeah you know <laughs> um, cool just, the guy just uh he just kind of he just looked he looked solid so that's what I wanted to do and uh, I didn't hesitate got to 16 and a half and really had no other plan and to be honest uh as, as a lot of young guys do you know uh, it's kind of a little on the path down the wrong way, I suppose you could put it, and uh, it was probably a really good thing that you know that? that was an option for me at that point. So, yeah, yeah, that was uh, kind of how to f- how I found my way in anyway. And where did it turn to being a medic? Did that kind of happen okay. naturally, or yeah? So I, I actually wasn't a medic in the uh, New Zealand Defence Force at all. I worked in kind of how to put it pseudo medical roles, uh, you know, within sections, within detachments and uh, teams and so on, but. I was never actually uh, a army medic. Uh, my parent corps, the corps that um, I went through, enlisted with, uh, was actually the infantry regiment. Okay. Uh, and obviously, medical was one of those things that uh, should be taken a hell of a lot more seriously. Yeah. Uh, especially when I joined up, uh, we, were, we were way off the eight ball. Things developed as kind of global war or terror kind of wore on, and uh, as people had more experiences, and uh, we had quite a few experiences, a number of uh, really bad accidents along the way as well. Uh, where we kind of figured out that uh, things weren't working so well. But, yeah, we were still way off the mark even when I left um, from where we really should have been at that point. Okay, and then, but then after you left, you did a couple of, um, ex- uh, apart from the, the, the security contractor stuff, sure. you did stuff in uh, disaster zones. Like, how did, like, at what stage do you become a medic or do paramedicine or... Yeah, sure. So, um, kind of my, uh, I guess there's, there was a number of events that I've had through my life which have kind of uh, made me look at med uh, or look at in particular first aid or the the initial response to uh, somebody who's got a life-threatening injury uh, which needs to be managed uh, prior to higher care getting on top of them and getting back through to hospital yeah um, for me probably the first deployment I had overseas was was a really big one in terms of military uh, I saw a system I saw process uh, that was post Indonesia tsunami on Boxing Day uh, we had an estimated 180,000 people killed around the place. Um, you know, bodies were getting carted through the mass graves uh, to contain a disease even when we were actually leaving uh, after uh, two months after the actual tsunami had happened. Um, inside the army itself, um, I guess it was one of those topics that you kind of cover. Um, you know, I was kind of naturally drawn to it, I suppose. Um, I'd had a number of experiences, you know, uh, in service and, and actually prior to service too. 
uh, where you know I kind of sat there and didn't really feel like I knew what to do, and there was a there was a big reason for me kind of going through and doing what we do here in Prakmed, but uh, just having that desire to learn more and more and more. So yeah. Okay. And then then um, what, what training did you then go and do? Yeah, sure. So um, basically, uh, once I left service, uh, that was after we stopped going overseas, and you know, kind of at that stage, I'd done just under I think just under eleven years, and at that stage, I was kind of like, yeah, I just don't really want to wander around Waiuru training area freezing, yeah, 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 <laughs> and being cold just for the sake of chasing, uh, you know, the imaginary bad guys. So uh, I ended up by getting out uh, of um, of army and I left and went across uh, overseas, uh, enlisted in a bunch of courses, uh, which are sponsored through uh, Royal College of Surgeons uh, UK. Uh, absolutely fantastic. A uh, number of different short courses which focused on things that. Uh, they had learnt um, and the British kind of had developed and experienced uh, of experience and then developed into courses uh, which were relevant. And what I noticed about that was just the, the simplicity about what they were doing. Um, that it kind of got rid of all the, the, the fluff, all the stuff which doesn't really actually matter that much to somebody who uh, isn't going to be doing this kind of stuff 24-7, isn't kind of employed in this role. Uh, they just have to know it because, um, you know, they need... They're, they're in a dangerous area, they're in a dangerous place and they need to keep somebody alive in the initial minutes um, or potentially hours after an initial strike or uh, contact has occurred, yeah. an incident where somebody has been badly injured. So yeah, I went across there, did that, um, done a number of other uh, kind of courses since, uh, kind of running around the place, um, high level medicine, but um, quite honestly, uh, probably those ones over in the UK have had the biggest impact in terms okay. of uh, what I've done moving forward. And then after that you came back home and... and or then just worked and then started Prakmed, you kind of had a bit of yeah, a, yeah. Uh, how can I say, you became a bit uh, disappointed by the industry, <laughs> how it was. <laughs> disappointed would be a nice way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, so um, after after I did all my coursing and whatnot uh, over over overseas, um, I ended up by uh, obviously jumping in and working privately as a contractor for uh, just under five years uh, in total. Uh, finished up in 2017, came home uh, and started working uh, in the the trade industry training sector. So basically making sure people had qualifications go through so they could be employable. And one of the subjects that I was teaching was first aid and the syllabus was very, very broken to yeah. say the least. Yeah. Um, it felt very much like we're just trying to achieve compliance uh, rather than actual competence as such uh, and confidence of the operator to go through uh, and actually treat somebody. Um, from my experience, from what I saw, from the anecdotes walking through the door, people seemed to resonate with me, uh, let it all out, tell me their stories and I was like, wow, you know, we, we, we can do better than this in New Zealand, yeah. we really can. So. Um, yeah, I basically fronted, tried to change syllabus from the inside, um, you know, for various reasons. It just didn't work out. That's cool. Um, uh, but, you, you know, you have you have options. When you are in a position where you see something which is not right, you can either walk past it and ignore it, and that's the standard that you accept, or yeah. you can turn around and you can, you can do something about it. So I did. So two weeks later, my resignation went in, um, or roundabouts, and uh, I was out, and uh, here we are, Prakmed. How was that? <laughs> That was about 18 months ago or so, okay. I guess, um, or roundabouts. Um, so, yeah, I, I did my best trying to work on things for about, I guess, a year with the previous employer, but um, there wasn't to be. And I, I, you know, I get it, you know, um, not everybody has the same passion, not everybody has the same yeah. understanding or the under, understanding of the actual topic. You know, very, very few people 
actually truly understand what real first aid well, legitimately is. I know where I worked, um, I would tell them that just ticking the box isn't sufficient and they don't didn't care. Corporate doesn't care. Corporate mm. is just like as long as in, in a court of law it will stand up that we had the yeah. qualified people on the scene, yeah. then it's then it's not gonna work and it's not gonna change. Okay, now emergencies. How do you train? Where you're saving someone's life and you're being shot at the same time. Are you do you train through experience or or do you just really rely on your team to keep you safe while something like that is happening? Yeah, sweet. So um, ta tactical medicine is actually uh, a lot like, and there's a lot of very similar principles to uh, from the tactical side to uh, what you'd find in everyday first aid within New Zealand or any other um, country at all. Um, and that is that you uh, primarily have to look after yourself and everybody else who's good around you before you kind of, uh, go ahead and start treating casualty. Yeah, um, there's a number of different kind of facets there. Um, obviously, training will get you so far. Um, a lot of the training we did uh, was extremely hard. Uh, it's designed to put you under a lot of stress and pressure, yeah. um, and obviously that's not from the get go. Um, learning the basics very well first is what really gets people through. Um, but also actually focusing on self aid uh, is a huge part of that. Um, you know, some sometimes you may be sitting there um, in in a bit of a sticky situation for quite some time, managing you know the, you know the threat, whatever else, and an evacuation or you know uh, extracting casualty might not be as simple as just picking them up and running down the road. And I think that's probably one of the big problems um, that the NZDF had was that, um, or the Army had was that because you know there hadn't been uh, a lot of kinetic action, um, there had been a few bits and pieces happening East Timor. Um, but there hadn't been a lot of action within uh, even Afghanistan and whatnot, especially in the early days, um, that people really didn't understand the reality of what it's like to yeah. you know be shot at or you know have a uh, contact happening around you or you know IEDs or whatever else you know uh, going off around you, um, and because because there is no relevant um, well there's, there's there's no relevant kind of uh, experiences to turn to, people just start making stuff up and yeah. Um, that that is a that is a real problem, and it seems to be a, a problem which has kind of resurfaced. Uh, I'm not talking about the NZDF here. I have no idea what they do. I'm just talking uh, uh, about uh, you know to, to other people, friends of mine that I communicate with on a regular basis, who say the same thing about you know what's going on over in the British Army and yeah, yeah. what's happening in the states and stuff. And the the emphasis for a long time was on um, you know tactical combat casualty care as such, um, which has become a bit of a thing and. Um, you know, now because there's a lot less kinetic operations out there, um, people are kind of switching off from it a little bit. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of things which apply from that into civilian walk of life. And it all starts with, um, you know, it's all system and process, but it starts off with making sure that you're managing the danger or managing security yeah. um, of the situation that you're in. Um, and th this is something which naturally is sometimes very, very difficult to do, uh, especially if it's somebody that you know, especially if it's somebody you care about, um, especially if they're making a lot of noise uh, and, you know, uh, that person um, may be, you know, screaming for help or whatever else and, you know, you might not necessarily be able to go in there and assist them straight away. Uh, it's about taking that tactical pause, taking that big breath and it's exactly the same 
when you look at uh, in the civilian context, you know, if somebody gets hit by a car, you don't go sprinting out into the road. Yeah, you wait uh, to see if safe. <laughs> you're going to find yourself getting hit by a car. Yeah. You know, you've got to manage the traffic first. You know, you've got to slow things down, get people out there. You know, use bystanders, push out, and make sure that you know somebody's not going to come through and mow down the um, mow down the first aiders who are working yeah. on the person in the middle yeah. of the road. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So if you have to f- finish the firefight, finish the fight and exactly. get to the person. And, and that's where self-aid comes into it so massively. Um, obviously, that's more in the context of uh, the military side of the house, but it's something that we do focus on a little with uh, the practical side of the house as well. You know, um, It's all good you coming through. You've done the course. Um, you, know, you know how to look after yourself. But if you're out there, if you're the one who gets hit by a vehicle or whatever else, yeah, yeah. You, I mean... You don't know, uh, 99.8% of the people out there who have never done this course ever before, you know, or have none of this training, um, you know, they have no idea what to do. And every, everybody likes to think they're good to go and that they're, you know, going to be capable of doing this or that if things go down. But, you know, when they really do go down, that's when we find out who's who in the zoo. And, and yeah. um, although people don't like to admit it, most people aren't actually that great. No. If we talk uh, about, about uh, Stop the Bleed... Yeah, definitely, man. So um, Stop the Bleed is the, uh, one of the short courses that I run through uh, our company, uh, which is PracMed New Zealand or Practical Medicine New Zealand. Uh, it's a company which um, is pretty new on the block as far as first aid training providers go. Uh, but, you know, we've come through and obviously introducing a new breed of medicine, which has come from um, essentially uh, some of the experiences that I've had overseas and a lot to do uh, with the evidence which has been collected um, from uh conflict areas, uh, war zones and hostile environments uh, largely over the last 20 years or so. So yeah, that's um, that's Stop the Bleed. It's uh, 20 years worth of essentially evidence-based medicine which has been crammed into one little four and a half hour uh, complete package and it's designed to equip people, uh, everyday Kiwis, with um, realistic first aid training which is actually going to make a difference if they ever get into that position. Um, the basis is you want to keep blood in a person and keep them alive. Right? 100%. And you've got uh, a couple of major arteries and you manage those you can tell me if i'm wrong because <laughs> this no, is no, a question so you get a few uh, more than a couple <laughs> yeah, yeah okay <laughs> uh, yeah for sure and um uh, you need to manage those when there's a, a cut or a bleed a course which is designed systematically um and that is one of my favorite words so i suppose i should probably expand on it <laughs> Um, so we, we go through and we learn basic uh, anatomy and physiology around the human body uh, relevant to bleeding and it's not about turning somebody into a PhD doctor or anything else like yeah. that. What it's about is understanding um, how uh, you know the, the, the blood vessels work in the sense of arteries versus veins, um, what they do, what the presentation looks like uh, and also um, you know how the body reacts when it obviously um, encounters uh, or is involved in traumatic incident and how that can uh, affect what you do. Um, it also gives you an understanding of uh, the fact that it really isn't that difficult. It's simply uh, going through and making sure that we do keep bo- uh, blood within circulation. So we go through, we understand that, um, we learn about uh, that, we uh, present people uh, with um, arterial bleeding just to show them what legit bleeding looks like yeah uh, or sorry legit is probably a poor term to <laughs> use um, what what an arterial bleed does look like yeah. um, and then 
kind of move forward from there. And a lot of people uh, haven't actually seen arterial bleeding, or in particular those people who haven't seen arterial bleeding, it does take them by surprise. Uh, we pull no punches on that, um, and some people, some providers out there, probably be rolling their eyes and going, it's out of basic life support, scope, or whatever else. Well, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? Do you want to sit there and watch somebody bleed to death, or do you want to go in there and have your best chance at trying yeah. to save their life? Um, from there, we go through um, and we jump into um, learning about what is known as indirect pressure. So indirect pressure is a, is a series of pressure points within the body uh, to go through. It's designed to stem or slow um, arterial bleeding. It's a point between um, the injury and obviously the heart. So it's cutting off um, circulation at a major uh, arterial passage. Uh, to try and slow things down, and that's so, just so. So, give me an example of a, a yeah. wound that you get and, and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So, if we think about things like uh, on a work site, um, for example, if somebody puts a saw across their hand or through their hand. Um, maybe you know somebody pushes a window open, uh, which is not safety glass, and they slice their hand open. Um, obviously, there's a series of arteries or um, an arch through the palm of your hand. Um, if that's cut, then, you know, I mean, it's not going to kill you too quick, but it's still something that we need to be concerned about. We can use a radial control point pushing down on the radius and ulnar bones um, and crushing the arterial passage there to stem a lot of the bleeding through into the hand. That's really useful. Um, and one thing we do push very heavily is obviously um, people are, are, you know, gen generally pretty blown away by the IDP that we use. Um, and IDP? Indirect pressure, sorry. Okay, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, full of acronyms. Uh, <laughs> I've been doing my best. Um, and they go through and they do that. One thing that we stress massively is that indirect pressure is not a, uh, it's not a solution. It's a temporary intervention. Yeah. You need proper um, hemorrhage control uh, solutions. And yeah, that's just not going to cut the mustard in terms of trying to get somebody from point A to point B. But it is a good first step. First step, yeah. And then obviously there's all these points throughout your body. So if mm. it's a hand cut, you'll... We'll go for the Absolutely. brachial, right, radial, radial, and yeah. then if it's let's say between the elbow and the the shoulder, you'll put pressure on the subclavian. So we've got the sub subclavian and behind the collarbone, and they yeah. basically it, it becomes worse and worse as you go on. So yeah. the the radial control is obviously fairly easy. It's yeah, nice you can do it yourself. Yeah, it's it's a piece of cake. But then you know we go into brachial for any forearm injuries um, across the um, brachial artery. Um, and then, you know, subclavian is you know, hunting around a little bit behind the collarbone and then um, becomes uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, we go down and hit the iliac artery as well with indirect pressure just off the side of the ilium and the pelvis there and control bleeding through into the um, lower limbs or the lower limb extremity uh, points. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a temporary measure. Um, from there, obviously, it's straight into the, um, into the, into the interventions that we use um, with uh, bandaging, uh, yeah. with compression dressings and wound packing for junctional areas, tourniquets. So chest, junctional areas um, is an area between a limb and the body? Yeah, so it's, a, it's, it's the junctional areas in the shoulders, the neck, and, of course, the, uh, in particular, the groin. Um, yeah. And that's because that's where the big pipes lie uh, with regards to those arterial passages. Um, there are areas where you cannot use uh, arterial tourniquet or it's going to be, you know, um, either because the artery is, you know, uh, being severed and retracted back up into the pelvis or um, into the tissue. Uh, the Obviously, arterial tourniquet require a bit of standoff from the actual injury point to be uh, effective in that sense. So we need to think about these things. The neck is obviously not a 
option for yeah, a tourniquet, so <laughs> we need to go through and uh, know how to control serious bleeds through there too. And then, and then packing. Um, so packing is basically stuffing in as much bandage as you can. That's absorbent. Hundred percent. Yeah. So it's it's packing is one of these things which has been around for ever essentially. Um, as, as, as you know, since Adam was a boy, basically. But what we're looking at is essentially trying to fill the cavity with good pressure. And yeah. wound packing is, uh, again, it's not a black art. Um, people, again, have major issues or, you know, raise their eyebrows when they say this is basic life support. Again, what are you supposed to do? Sit there well, if you're not going to pack, the guy's going to die or the precisely. person's going to die. Yeah, and um, uh, the first arterial bleeds that uh, I ever dealt with um, was actually uh, exactly that. Um, it was ironically directly after a uh, basic life support course or basic medical course, basic tactical medical course in, in the military. Um, and it involved a few bears. I'll keep the details fairly light um, just to protect the individual who was involved. Uh, but either way, um, uh, glass windows and human tissue don't mix. So we had uh, a good couple of arterial bleeds going on um, and some other fairly significant injuries. A, a couple, not one. Yeah, not couple. one. So it was um, it was pretty it was pretty interesting. Um, we went through and uh, at that stage we actually weren't being issued uh, packing gauze or anything like that. So we had to improvise and we we're using just regular combo dressings. Um, so dressings which aren't elasticated. Uh, they've got a little bit of pad on them and stuff like that. And we're just stuffing these things into this dude's body. <laughs> and um, we got the job done. Um, yeah, we got the job done. He's still he's still kicking about. He's still alive. Uh, but the amount of fluid that this guy lost was just, you know, I, 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 you know I've seen animals bleed out and stuff like that, you know, um, and, you know, being around home kill, being around hunting and stuff like that. But I'd never seen a person bleed this much. Um, and, and he lived. He lived, yeah. Because the technique worked. Oh, I, I wasn't too sure um, at, you know, when we, because we self-transported him through to hospital. Um, yeah, we, I wasn't too sure, but um, yeah, we continued with a few libations in town and um, just figured it out on Monday. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he lived. What What is the, what is the, um, like, uh, uh, any pressure point, like, I can see how I'll be able to handle that. Sure. A tourniquet is easy. Once it's on and it does the job. You're pretty much finished till the ambulance picks yeah. him up, unless you're in the back country, which we'll speak about later. Yeah. But packing, I mean that that is insane. Like that's the one thing I don't want to do. Like, what's going through your mind? Because um, you you said in stop the bleed that you're looking, you're not looking at that as a person because you have to save their yeah. life first. Um, I I, I think just, everybody has their vices, uh, and I get that as well. Uh, you know, everybody has things that they don't like looking at. Everybody has things which maybe bother them. Uh, a lot. I have mine, um, you know, um, but dealing with trauma in that sense, um, I've never had a problem with it. Um, I actually prefer, well, I wouldn't say prefer, but I don't like seeing animals hurt more than I like seeing people hurt. Oh, yeah, you know, I feel it's, the same it's way. one of these things, you know, I just I can't stand it. Um, for me, I, I just got on with it. You know, there's an intrinsic understanding that you need to get this job done, otherwise yeah. this person is going to die. Yeah. It's really quite that simple. And that, that, is, that is the reason why we're bringing this out into the open. I think sunlight is the best disinfectant for a uh, topic which is so badly um, and, oh, so so poisoned um, at this point. And that is first aid in general within yeah. New Zealand. Uh, quite frankly, it sucks. I have no problem saying that. 
um, you know, <laughs> there's a reason why PRAC Med NZ exists. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so packing for me uh, has, has, you know, I mean, I certainly haven't had to do it um, uh, as much as other people have, you know, in way more kinetic environments. I've been lucky um, in that sense. I mean, I've had to pack wounds three times now. Um, were you know, were they all were, except for that one? Were the yeah, other two in battle? Yeah. So other other ones were combat related injuries uh, or you know um, a- activity which had happened at the result of um, an incident, and it was um, yeah it was it was interesting. Um, the uh, reality of it is that the more we talk about this stuff, the more we get it out in the open, the yeah. easier it becomes. It's like anything. Um, you know, uh, for, for for a lot of people, they look at it the first time they hear about it and they think that is disgusting, I can't manage it, you know, I can't do anything about this, this is why we need to ease people in. But, you know, uh, Stop the Bleed is where we do that. We bring kind of the fact to it and yeah, deal with the emotion first is, is uh, sorry, deal with the emotion afterward is definitely something that I encourage. Uh, look at the person as that engine. Um, and you said we're going to talk about it, uh, the mental health aspect is something that uh, is huge within um, first aid as well, uh, because obviously you're dealing with a traumatic incident. Yeah. Um, it wasn't expected, uh, and that can easily be con- considered a critical incident every time, yeah. and um, we need to start talking about that as yeah. well. But yeah, packing. Um, what's, what's the worst wound you've dealt with? Was it a pack wound in in battle or anywhere? Um, worst wound? No, I don't think so. Um, so the scariest one I reckon I've actually dealt with, um, and this takes a lot of people by surprise, um, was actually a difficult airway to manage. Um, and that's, uh, there's been twice in my life where I felt that I was starting to flat spin a little bit. And what I mean by flat spin is starting to lose control of a situation. Uh, and when when somebody's life is on the line, or my own life is on the line, and basically um, I felt, yeah, very, very out of control. Um, it was actually, uh, and... I have to obviously be careful how much kind of I uh, divulge about this, but uh, it was a young girl um, whose airway uh, was um, not great. Um, from from a, from a, from like an allergic reaction or from a from no, an accident. So the mechanism of injury um, was basically she was a um, a staff member of a contract I was working on. Uh, we'll save the specifics on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, basically. She'd come into work, she'd been deprived of food, water, she'd been sexually assaulted uh, pretty much for a consistent 24-hour period. Wow. Uh, she'd been beaten extremely badly. Uh, she also had a number of things wrong with her, including malaria. Um, and it was just after first shift brief, so we'd obviously had change a shift for everything that we did. We'd go through, give our briefs and stuff like that. Um, and uh, I just got back up and started my morning reporting actually and I was um, sitting in uh, as a site medic uh, at that point we had our usual site medic was away um, and then the code came across the radio and uh, obviously grabbed a trauma bag grabbed, um, had the AED with it and all that and went hammering down um, when I say trauma bag it's got all the stuff in it you know, yeah. in terms of airway management, respiration um, you know, all, all the stuff that you typically carry in a hostile environment um, headed down and um, there she was and my guys, uh, the guys who are on that contract local nationals and the others, they were doing an exceptional job uh, and going through and doing what they could for her um, however uh, when I got down there it was a real mess and there was a significant amount of blood coming up through her mouth, uh, there was a lot of saliva uh, she was in a massive seizure at this point uh, and 
there was a little bit of noise I could hear, but not much. And for me, that was something which uh, I kind of just froze up uh, <laughs> after oh. looking at what was happening. Um, I tried to actually go in, and I'm not kidding. Like this is, I mean, anybody listening here has got any experience within med or within seizures, um, you know, uh, you know, you're going to understand how poorly executed this was or how impossible it was but it was trying to pull her face open basically I just panicked and you know looked at her and tried to pull her face open that wasn't happening when somebody's in a seizure you're not, you're yeah. not opening their mouth up so that for me was a so uh, you were trying to intubate is that the correct well, word what, what I was were trying, you trying to, to use I was trying to clear her airway because okay. of the amount of uh, saliva or foam saliva and blood which was coming up and yeah. Um, basically I realised there was no way I was getting in there and she wasn't coming out of the seizure by then it was probably around about 120 seconds or two minutes worth of uh, continuous uh, convulsions uh, from there um, basically whilst the vehicle was being arranged to come down we had an emergency uh, response team vehicle which was coming down and we are going to get her off to um, where she needed to be um, uh, went through and just took a step back took a deep breath on, cleared my head Went through my drills as best as I could. Positioning was key. Obviously, went through with the suction device I had at that stage uh, and cleared out everything I could from around that area, and she came back pretty quick. As soon as we got that uh, airway cleared, I remember hearing the noises of her breathing. Uh, when she started breathing kind of normally again, and the seizure started kind of dropping off a little. Uh, and for me, that was uh, exceptionally frightening. She... Uh, you know, I, you know, I'm no specialist when it comes to the neurological side of the house. Uh, I've had a number of uh, experiences with seizures with people uh, in hot areas in particular. And for me, that was, that was really, really quite significant. I mean, I've seen people uh, lose limbs. I've seen people uh, in some really, really bad shapes. I've seen a lot of death as well. But that yeah. for me, I don't, I don't know why it stood out so much, why it freaked me out so much. Um, why I tripped over for a second, uh, all I am seriously thankful for is that um, she came back around and, yeah. and she was online. So, yeah. I, I think it has to do with control because with yeah. a wound, it, look, I can be completely wrong and please tell me if I am, but with, mm. with a wound or a cut, it's, it's, it seems very basic, right? But if someone's having a seizure and their, their airway is, is, is blocked, that seems like a lot of things to manage. Yeah, I, I personally, I don't. I don't. Um, I'm, I'm not too sure. You know, I mean, um, some some injuries are. You know, um, some of the injuries are catastrophic that you see, especially you know, uh, in, in hostile environments and so on. But for me, um, I, I, I have no idea what it is. I've tried to reflect on it. Um, I've had other things kind of pop up here and there as well. Uh, and it's the funny little things which kind of get you. I guess this is yeah. kind of a segue into the mental health side. But yeah. um, for me. Um, yeah, that was definitely one of the big ones for me. Um, was watching that and going through and managing it um, was, was, was a real big thing for me. Um, I, yeah, I was just very lucky that that came around. She, she lived. Um, she was back at work later on. Um, but, yeah, kind of unraveled a really interesting situation in terms of work dynamic uh, because of where I was working at that time, the, yeah, the part of the world that I was in. Um, yeah, things didn't work out so well for at home, that was for sure. So, For her? Oh, no, for her husband. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the next thing so, I wanted yeah. to say. Uh, so you got the bastard in the end. Oh, I, I didn't touch him. But Somebody got the bastard. Without going through, yeah. yeah we'll I'm from South there. Africa. I can say, I hope you got yeah. the bastard. <laughs> too. Yeah. So Political yeah, no. correctness uh, isn't in my genetics. <laughs> I'm learning a lot about it. Army-type medic. 
which you said you weren't, but uh, <laughs> what's the thing you deal with the most? Like dehydration or, or fights okay, yeah, or so, um, drunk people or what, what do you yeah, deal with the sure. most? Okay, so the most common thing, I guess, um, that you do see is, is a lot of kind of extremity things and strains and sprains and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's probably I don't know whether the guys are going to be listening to this or anything like that, but um, one of the chief complaints, especially when you're still in country in New Zealand, that is uh, routine things is uh, guys who uh, have gone and found themselves a wife for the weekend. <laughs> oh, you're dealing with, <laughs> and uh, uh, they've they've got a they've got a bit of an itch or a scratch down below. Um, <laughs> In terms of... Um, so you know everything of everyone. <laughs> That's basically what... Well, trust is a pretty important thing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to not mention any names. Those guys know who they are. Uh, we wow. Go, we're going to... No, so um, in terms of in terms of general trauma, a lot of cuts, grazes, scrapes, uh, sprains and strains and so on. Um, broken bones as well. Uh, guys come through and um, even, you know, minor breaks I'm talking about, you know, fractures of the wrists and the ankles and feet and fingers and stuff. and Falls. Yeah, guys, guys don't want to, well, yeah, everything, you know, any kind of mechanism which will contribute to it, but guys don't want to put their hand up, you know, especially uh, in, you know, the infantry corps and other areas and so on, and uh, they're very pr- proud about, you know, not putting their hand up and they want to be looked at as staunch and so on, and it's a bit of a problem, you know, when, you know, you've got guys who won't say anything and then if you've got a, you know, fast rope out of a helicopter or do a rappel or if you've got to carry anything for a long distance and someone's got a broken wrist... <laughs> It's yeah. it's a bit of a problem, you know. Um, but yeah, so common things, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, routine or what I refer to as administrative injuries, you know, uh, they're pretty well taken care of, I guess. Um, you know, we're, we're pretty lucky for for the most part. A lot of the stuff that I saw in service was, you know, mostly scrape, scratches and, and cuts, just minor stuff. And so. when you working, were working like in disaster situations, mm-hmm. like what is it like crash wound from buildings? Or like what did you see most? Yeah, so um, obviously our first deployment overseas was to Indonesia. Um, that was really interesting. Uh, we had everything coming through the door. Um, you know, everything from your motor vehicle accidents because they suck driving over there and use a kind of beep as an indicator and um, it's just simple physics. Car versus tuk-tuk or bus versus tuk-tuk um, is pretty gnarly and I remember a few of those coming through uh, where we were in Arche Hospital, uh, a few of those coming through. There was one particular bridal party uh, come through and... Um, yeah, the the groom he didn't have a face, and neither did the bride. Um, oh, they'd wow. been on a tuk tuk, and they came through and um, hit into the side of a truck, uh, or, or collected a truck somehow, and basically that was them. And um, it wasn't so much a trauma of them coming through, you know. I mean, um, a lot of facial trauma and stuff like that. It's uh, you know, if it's survivable, it's about positioning, it's about you know proper intubation and management of the airway. Um, you know, it looks really horrific, but again, it's positioning. Um, for me, what was interesting about that experience, and that's one which actually does stand out to me a little, um, was actually the family um, who came in afterwards. Now, uh, Band Arche is a, uh, obviously um, a part of Indonesia. It's quite uh, religious, and, you know, uh, they, they, they have their kind of thing going on with that. Um, and dealing with the family was a really interesting one because I was super emotional coming through the door and stuff and um, it was quite a fine line or a balancing act, you know, um, allowing them to be anywhere near the the, the, uh, the patients who had been brought in so the teams could go through, or the surgical teams could go through and do their work. But at the same time, you know, um, you didn't want to kind of start grabbing these little Indonesian people and start throwing them out the door because mm. that would have created a massive situation. Um, so, yeah, that, that, was, that was kind of interesting as well. 
Um, and uh, Indonesia was was fascinating. Like I said, we had um, the MVAs or the motor vehicle accidents. Um, we also had uh, we had a lot of gunshot wounds coming through as well, and that was just because there was uh, still militia fighting against the Indonesian army up there. Um, we had people who were coming through after a month who were missing parts of their limbs uh, from amputation. Um, essentially, for the first two k's from the beach back uh, inland was all made of corrugated iron shacks. Oh, so that's so moving. When a ten meter wave hit the wall, uh, hit the hit the shacks and so on, um, everything was gone. And I remember driving out to um, Ground Zero and looking around the place, and um, you know, I've, I've you know spent seven years, almost seven years in total, uh, in hostile environments and war zones and uh, various other conflict areas and stuff like that, and. Looking at that, I'd, I, I've never seen anything like that. There's nothing which is comparable. Um, the only thing I can compare it to is, you know, footage of a nuclear bomb going off, yeah. and uh, the place was just flattened. The only only thing that I remember really seeing, which was standing anywhere near the shoreline, was um, was a mosque, um, this you know giant big mosque in the middle, of, and it looked like all the if if you stood you know ten kilometres away and looked in on it or were above it looking down, you'd think there was just ploughed fields around it. As you got closer, you could see you know pieces of people in some cases and cars crushed under boats and you know uh, boats on top of roofs of buildings yeah. further inland yeah. it was just unbelievable unbelievable I mean you know people say I hope I never see that again well I you know legitimately hope I never see that ever again yeah I can imagine mm. um, maybe this is a good uh uh, entry into mental health, but I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna hold back on that stuff. No, 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 it's cool. I want to talk about the backcountry stuff first. Yeah, yeah, okay, so good. you call yeah. it remote areas. Yeah. Uh, in your courses, how do you define backcountry? Wherever there's no cell phone signal. Yeah, cool. So remote areas first aid is uh, basically what we design this for is for people who are going to be more than an hour away from kind of first aid and may have the possibility of having to extract. Uh, themselves or maybe um, one of the you know tramping hunting uh, forestry worker parties whatever else yeah. okay um, it's it's for people who um, you know uh, yeah like like I said in that position where they may have to self extract and need a little bit more than what you'd probably say uh, would be typical of um, you know stop the bleed or what we call essential first aid which is CPR and stop the bleed that's for people who you know um, everyday Kiwis that that is the standard. Um, but there's the minimum standard. Remote areas first aid, we, we don't so much focus on the um, the CPR side of the house, and there's good reason for that, unless you have an AED out in the backcountry with you, which virtually nobody does. Yeah. Uh, and if they do, they're generally pretty well trained on it. Uh, there, there is very little point in terms of focusing on that. Um, some people might argue against that. However, you know the time it takes for ambulance to get on top of you, uh, air ambulance or otherwise, um, the time it takes or the energy and, and whatnot it takes to go through and conduct CPR and also um, the ability to keep the brain alive uh, without oxygen or anything like that, then this turns into a problem. If you're one of those people who's carrying oxygen already, well, you're wasting your time listening to this. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that we focus on, you know, a little more. So we look at things like, um, you know, of course, your burns. We look at, um, you know, your broken bones. We look at uh, things like going through and assessing spinal uh, injuries as well and uh, littering techniques or uh, how we go through and carry. Um, this, this is obviously relevant for um, not just the, the remote areas first aid side of the house, but for people um, who want to uh, train a little harder, especially you know in the climate that we're in, we've had you know two really, really, well, more than two, but two earthquakes which have con con uh, 
contributed to significant damage to a major city here in New Zealand. Um, we've had a terrorist incident as well, uh, March last year. I don't there was a flood is. last year, right? There was yeah, a bit of flooding in South Island and crazy. some of the trampers got, I think there was two missing, two dead. Yeah, Same yeah, so I think that was, yeah, that, that was, um, I was down in Christchurch at that time. I was actually taking a stop the bleed. I remember there was a big weather system which had come through and that was up in the hills, up and obviously behind Christchurch there and, um, yeah, there was. Uh, they weren't too far away from uh, SARS or search and rescue, as far as I'm aware, as well. Obviously, I'm not mixed up within that crowd, so I'm yeah. not too sure on the specifics. But I heard through the grapevine that, um, yeah, it was it was it was very close, and you know, it was a real tragedy. They just simply didn't prepare properly. Uh, they didn't respect the elements and um, didn't go through and have the necessary uh, equipment to kind of sort themselves out and and stay alive in, in mm-hmm. the conditions. So. Yeah. Very so, sad. so what challenges does backcountry give you? Because you've got weather, mm. you've got you're missing uh, golden hour, like mm. you're missing like that yeah. point, um, and and uh, so so what's different? Yeah. So um, when when we talk about things like, um, for instance, bleeding uh, or any kind of uh, traumatic instance uh, incident that you have, um, you have to go through um, and work a lot faster and a lot harder. To um, get your um, get your patients stable um, and manage that hypothermia, yeah. that's um, that's probably the big killer there. Um, when we look at incidents in terms of how or the mechanisms of how people are being injured, a lot of it comes to falls. And yeah. with that being said, you know, um, there's a lot of emphasis on spinal injury and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, the person, if you have a spinal injury, you're no good to anybody if you're frozen to death or you know if you haven't been managed in that sense. And yeah. Um, so that's super important, and I, I, just, I just want to kind of remind up a little bit as well. Um, for those of you who are listening, if you don't carry an uh, EPIRB or a PLB, yeah. you need to go and buy one. Um, please, please just go and get one. Um, you know, it's like what three, four hundred dollars. Yeah. The thing is going to save your life if yeah. you know if you need uh, to go ahead and, and get extracted from somewhere. I've got a friend of mine. Um, he was extracted um, after a, a fall and. A broken ankle, um, and you know he wouldn't have had any other option. It would have been a real bad place to be. And this is a guy, um, you know, who's got uh, he spent years and years and years overseas. Um, you know, has massive experience with you know trauma and stuff like that. Um, you know, just just a just a he he knows what's up. You mm. know, he knows what's up, and you know that that is a huge one. Prevention um, in that sense is, is so important, but. Hypothermia um, is one of the big killers. Um, what difference does it make um, for you know bleeding? Well, it's a really subjective kind of question, I guess, or a topic. Um, look, you can only do what you can do. Uh, and something that I make very clear to my students as well is that not everybody gets to survive, not everybody gets to live. That is an unfortunate part of life. If it wasn't that, you know, if it, if that wasn't the case, then there would be a whole bunch of really cool people still around. Yeah, um, yeah. You know. <laughs> Um, but it is so um, sometimes the trauma is too much um, but what we focus on there is obviously going through um, and figuring out after we've got the person warm um, or after we've controlled the bleed got the person warm how are we going to get them out of there yeah. so littering techniques is big there um, ice, oh, sorry, management of the, the burns as well that's hugely important um, you know people tipping their jet ball stoves or their little thermos cups on their groins or inside their leg or wherever else, and you know, going through and actually understanding what it takes to manage a burn properly, uh, and also how dangerous these things can actually be. So it's a little bit of awareness in there too. Yeah. 
So, um, yeah. uh, I'm doing an article now for someone on actually what happens when you press the button in a PLB. Sure. And um, one of the guys I'm speaking to basically was hunting tar and uh, he was older, I think he was probably 60 around then. And he just grabbed on to uh, uh, like tussock and fell backwards. Mm. And he fell four meters and he broke his back and he had, he had a, um, a root through his lung. And if, if he didn't have a PLB, there's no chance he would have been here. He said you couldn't even walk out of that place. They were mm. dropped by helicopter and they were to be picked up a couple of days later by helicopter. And I'm thinking um, in, in South Africa, there's a, like a big thing amongst hikers and that, no, man, you'll sort yourself out. But <laughs> the thing is, that's, that's a gung-ho mentality that has to go because that's yeah. how many people have, have died, I think. Yeah. So, so PLB is, and you can rent it these days. You can rent it. I belong to the deer stalkers, $5 a day. Mm. It's, you, you can't go, yeah. go without it. Well, one thing I've always wondered about is like, Someone falls now, they break their back. You have to to um, litter them out. Like, how do you make the decision? Is it life over limb or is there signs you, like, someone's lying flat on the stomach, you have to turn them around. Mm, mm. I mean, if you don't have the correct equipment, are you just going to paralyze them? Uh, can you deal with yeah. that? Yeah, so, the, the, I mean, there's always a chance, especially, you know, when you're talking about falls, uh, you look at the mechanism of injury there and, um, you know, a fall as small as 600 mils, um, you know, 600 millimeters rather, um, is enough to go ahead and, and snap a neck or snap a bone, you know. Um, and in particular, when we talk about broken back or broken spine, um, particular emphasis needs to be given to the management of the C-spine of the first seven bones within the vertebrae, uh, first seven vertebrae within the spine, sorry. Uh, and those, That's from, yeah, from, from head skull, down. Yeah, yeah okay. from, the, from the skull down. So um, basically, um, that is something we need to give consideration to, but... Uh, say who's you and I out there, uh, my consideration first and foremost is going to be making sure obviously that you haven't got a massive bleed associated yeah. and also that your airway is not compromised. Now, yeah. if you don't have an airway, you are going to die regardless. And I think there's been too much emphasis of people becoming too worried uh, over spinal you know, uh, complications. And it's almost like time after time after time in my courses, I have people going, oh, you can't touch them because, you know, what if you break their neck? And it's, it's very simple. You just turn around and go, well, if he hasn't got an airway, how is the person going to die from a busted neck? If yeah, yeah, they're yeah. going to die from, you know, asphyxiation or, First. you know, where else? You know, it's, it's, um, it's just one of those things. So um, we do cover that. So spinal assessment is something which is pretty important. Um, my experience with spinal have been a number of incidents where spinal has been a, um, has been a factor. Um, people... They will tell you about their neck. They, if they're conscious, they will definitely. They'll say like, you. "You'll hear that it's in yeah." Pain. They have like an intrinsic understanding that they are in deep, deep trouble. Um, it's the same with bleeding. When people are bleeding to death, they will sometimes know and they will sometimes tell you, and and you know, um, they just know uh, that they they're going to be going out. Um, and the spinal thing, um, if you have somebody who knows that and they're awake and they know their neck's busted. Um, in my experience, they're, they're, a lot of the time they're going to be supporting themselves, and that's a really good thing. There is no need to shift them. There is no need to move them at that point. If they are um, self-managing, um, that's great. You know, cool. Okay, just stay there, bro. You're comfortable. You know, you need to obviously work, and you know, uh, it's kind of you know one of these things where I don't want to go ahead and start rattling off a uh, how would I put a, a scenario or anything like that? You know, it's it's just one of these things. But like I said, with my experience with it, um, guys have been managing their own spinal a lot of the time. 
um, and okay. that's definitely good. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, then uh, I, I wondered, like, if you break something, like, uh, right after I did the stop to bleed, you know, like I was driving for work and I saw a guy get hit by a car, and he broke. What bone is this? Yeah, sweet. So the tib, yeah, yeah tibia. Yeah, yeah, tibia is a shit bone. Yeah. Tibia, and it was like sticking out of the skin. Mm. If that guy is in the back country, mm. is he like? Oh, he's in trouble. <laughs> okay, he's in trouble. Why is he in trouble? <laughs> yeah, he's in trouble. Um, you know, low limbs are one of these things that I mean, you you physically cannot walk with your shit bone or your yeah, tibia okay. sticking through your your leg. Um, you, I mean, even the best splint job in the world, uh, you, you can't walk out with your tip sticking through your shin. It's okay, but if you're carrying him, what, what's that break? What problems is that break causing internally? Um, in terms of the actual break itself, so um, the, the, the shin bones as, su as such, I'm not going to get incredibly concerned by the actual fracture itself. Okay. Um, for me, pre-hospital, my main focus, especially if it's a compound fracture where you have bone actually sticking through the skin, is always going to be about fluid retention with okay. regards to... Um, obviously the uh, potential for associated uh, bleeding uh, or vessel disruption and uh, bleeding out or into the actual limb itself. So that, that, that is the, there's a primary focus of any kind of assessment there. Um, if you're a backcountry as well, um, depending on the fracture, I mean if it's, if it's this tib uh, and not as fibular as well, then it's something that maybe we need to go through and um, if both those bones are broken and the foot is folded right back um, underneath the leg or anything like that, um, that's going to cause circulatory issues potentially. So, so you're going to straighten it out? Yeah, we might have to. Um, if we cannot find a distal pulse, then you may need to go through. And that is something that um, is very, very, you know, I mean, every anybody who's broken a bone before, you're going to know what I'm talking about. The last thing that you want anybody to do is start playing around with your yeah, new yeah. joint, you know. So... Um, but the reality is, is that we may need to consider that as an option before littering that person out. Um, yeah. And when, when, when I'm talking about littering somebody out, you know, um, maybe it's because you can't get a helicopter in because of the weather is just so bad out there with you. You know, um, again, prevention is better than cure. Let's just be sensible about this. Don't go out when you've got a big system coming through. Do your due diligence on the weather. Okay, mm. if it looks like it's starting to pack up, you know, then you know maybe look at going ahead and getting back to your camp or getting back through to the heart or the shelter or whatever else, or temporary shelter, um, which is very, very important to carry with you as well. Um, you, the more risks you take, it's simple, you know, the, the bigger your chance of getting yourself into a real nasty situation. In my experience, when it rains, it pours. So, um, yeah, so uh, the considerations, obviously, uh, circulatory issues are a big one. Um, we want to try and keep it as, um, you know, um, as immobilized as possible to prevent injury from worsening and we look at things like splinting um, in that case you know whether people carrying splints with them whether they improvise and we need to also of course look at and consider managing uh, any infection as best as we can it's not a priority in my mind um, at this level in New Zealand um, I can't carry antibiotics on me and start delivery I don't carry stuff like that out with me yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I know and you know uh, that's a big thing especially now um, is the immediate delivery of antibiotics and uh, in combat areas and so on, um, which is awesome. Um, yeah. Obviously, that's come through with uh, a lot of the studies. But, yeah, circulation, uh, immobilization, prevention of uh, injury from worsening, and just making the person as comfortable as you possibly can is, is a big priority too. Like, I've always, like, people tell you, like, no by mouth, 
mm-hmm. an injury. Mm-hmm. You can't give anything till they're in the hospital. But out there, mm-hmm. can you give someone something to drink and give them pain meds? Or is it stupid to do any of that? Yeah, so, so for a, like a lower limb fracture, absolutely. Um, there's, yes, definitely. I mean, you're not obviously carrying morphine. If you are, then you probably know what you're doing. <laughs> Or, or you need to see a therapist, <laughs> one of the two. So, so when when are you yeah. not giving someone pain meds in yeah. the backcountry? Yeah, what, what situation will? Okay, so um, anything in terms of in terms of pain meds, it's a, it's a super subjective question again. Um, for for any kind of breaks, strains, sprains, etc. Um, yeah, I've got no problems in delivering uh, pain meds. When we talk about um, any kind of basic life support analgesia, we're talking you know paracetamol. Um, you know, that's generally what people are carrying on them uh, out there or ibuprofen, uh, paracetamol mixes and so on, um, and, uh, or aspirin. There's, there's nothing wrong with dumping in that um, and, you know, giving, giving it as per uh, packet prescription does um, or suggest. And that uh, paracetamol in particular is an absolute one drug. Uh, people often snort at it, you know, look at it and go, paracetamol, paras- uh, paracetamol, you know, Panadol, whatever. Um, it's incredible. The stuff is just amazing. So um, I recommend dropping that. Um, in terms of when we wouldn't give it to somebody, um, you know, if you're looking at, uh, you know, any kind of prolonged field care, it's a touch and go thing. It's not so much a drug which is going to cause you massive problems in my mind. It's more so going to be uh, the amount of fluid given. Now, yeah, yeah, in yeah. particular, when we're looking at things like uh, blood loss, um, when people are going through into hypovolemic shock, uh, which is you know the shock associated with uh, the loss of fluid from the body, namely blood in this instance. Uh, people, um, you know, I, I've uh, had limited experience with this, but anecdotes from other people is that people become extremely thirsty yeah. um, as they're hitting or transcending into hypovolemic shock. And if you start feeding people things, um, you know, whether it be water and whatever else, you know, and they start chugging it back. Um, there's obviously the danger that they're going to vomit on point um, and dehydrate themselves further. Um, there's also the problem that you may have when these people go through and uh, go down for surgery because there's probably no doubt about it, these people are going to go in and they're going under the, the white light and a sharp knife you yeah. know, um, to, to get fixed up. So that's something we don't want to be doing um, because that causes complications with okay. the, the surgeons uh, or the surgical team. And... Um uh, what do you tell them? You say, oh, sorry, not giving you any. Or what's the limit? Yeah. I mean, is a glass fine or is it like when yeah. you're getting so to liters? The, 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 the easiest way, I mean, obviously, if you're in a prolonged care situation, people need water to survive. Um, yeah. And also you need to be very mindful that, you know, if you dehydrate people, that can cause other uh, kind of issues as well. Uh, the blood, you know, starts to thicken up uh, considerably and, you know, the patient becomes more and more distressed that, um, yeah, it, it can cause problems. So, um, when, when we look at this kind of stuff, um, obviously monitoring the amount of urine output um, is a consideration for us. Uh, at basic life support level, uh, I'd look at no more than 200 mils per hour um, okay. and going through. If you're dealing with somebody in hypovolemic shock and they are really losing their stuff, um, really losing their mind over um, being thirsty, then another option, this is one for dehydration as well. Instead of giving somebody a big bottle of water, is soaking a bandage and getting the suck out of that um, into their mouth and being able to go through and just uh, give them that little bit of relief and that little bit of water, bring it on slowly because you don't ever give somebody a massive bottle of water if they're a bit dehydrated, yeah. well, sorry, if they're, in, uh, you know, if they're starting to go down with um, heat-related injury or illness and uh, they're just going to chug it back and then throw it back up straight away, yeah. causing the problem to be worse. 
do you do you feel the problem? I'm thinking now the problem with stop the bleed is maybe the same with um, backcountry stuff that yeah. is not codified. Like no one's got a like you're trying. That's basically what you're trying to yeah. do, right? You're trying to set a yeah. curriculum that becomes a standard in the end, which yeah. I assume. Because what I've read on the internet uh, in America, there's fifty people that will present it to you, yeah. and none of it's like they'll be thirty percent the same, and they differ on opinion on how to extract and yeah. when to give water and when. Like it's just, yeah. and then I assume in New Zealand it's probably you and maybe one. I don't know. Yeah. who's trying so to present this and, and getting a system going. There's there's nobody else currently in New Zealand who's actually gone through and taken this course and there actually won't be anybody else who'll be using Stop the Bleed as a um, as theirs either. Um, so, you know, we we put a bit of a protection plan in place for the topic and, you know, some people might go, Oh, it's a business thing. No, it's actually protecting the topic from uh, being debauched, being uh, molested and being chopped and uh, basically shaken to the point where it is no longer a relevant topic or looked at as just a compliance topic. I refuse that. Uh, I refuse to let that happen. Um, so I've gone through and I've protected it as best as I can, um, and we'll continue to do that. Um, it is going to be syllabus within New Zealand. We're going to make sure of that. We have plans in place for that. Watch the space. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's one of these things that you know. Um, it's it's kind of become how would I put it over the last X amount of months in New Zealand it's become like a sexy first aid topic and now you've got everybody who wants to come and teach us stuff but the reality is that most people uh, a they don't have the background or experience they don't actually understand the why um, and they have no relevant experience with legit first aid and what I'm talking about is bang something happens in front of you you have to go through and you have minutes to make a decision about yep. whether somebody lives or dies and that is you know, there's generally, and I mean, in this country, there's, uh, you know, one place that you're going to find those kind of people uh, cut from the same kind of cloth as, you know, where I've come from. And that's uh, that's why we have the people yeah. we do in the company. I, I know you uh, underplay the army thing a bit, <laughs> uh, but the only reason I did it with you guys was because I knew you would have the experience. Sure. Um, if if um, St. John's presented it, I probably wouldn't have, have taken it because there was no reason to. Because yeah. I wouldn't have trusted them. I know also the, the German army send uh, their medics to South Africa to work in the yep. Maraguanath hospital. Yeah. Because there you're getting like four or five gunshots a night, four or five stabbings yeah. a night. Good old South Africa will teach you how to deal with yeah. stuff. So so I think uh, you've got the upper hand already. Yeah, it's a, it's a massive point of difference, um, you know, with, with, the, with the military side of the house and stuff. And also, you know, coming from an environment where you're training uh, small teams, I've got an extensive background with training. It's not just, you know, uh, New Zealanders. I've had to train local nationals in a whole bunch of different countries. Um, and <laughs> uh, that, that is very challenging. So when I have a class um, in New Zealand, uh, even some of the more... Uh, outrageous ones, as you'd kind of put it, I guess. Uh, these guys are pretty pretty tame compared to, you know, if you're trying to take a group of, you know, for instance, Afghani national police officers or army guys through, um, you know, whatever training I was happening to take them for. Um, it was, it was yeah, it was fascinating, uh, to say the least. So, yeah, it is what it is. Uh, it is definitely a point of difference, um, you know, um, yeah, it's just, it's just one of those things. This is this is our topic here in NZ. We're going to own it. We're, we've taken control of it. And, yeah, we're going to teach it. Evidence-based medicine's where it's at. Are you talking to police and at all to present it to them? Are you having, like, real issues yeah. getting through? Or, yeah. you know, anything, government? Are you attempting that? 
Yeah, yeah. So um, definitely uh, quite interesting you kind of uh, bring that up. We've had um, a number of the, I guess, uh, there's been police who have approached us. Uh, we're working with them. Uh, a lot of the police, though, um, are coming through privately, uh, and it's really kind of heartbreaking, I guess, the stuff that they're telling us about um, and their like legitimate lack of confidence with what they're doing in terms of HemCon is a really serious thing. Um, I guess like any large organisation, um, you know, they have to be careful uh, about who they employ to do these things, who they employ to train them and whatnot. Um, but yeah, it, we, we, we have had dealings with police, um, some of the military and stuff like that. Um, ultimately, uh, like, I'll, I'll, I'll be completely honest, I do find them fairly hard to deal with as opposed to civilian organisations, uh, companies and whatnot, and they just come through, um, you know, often they'll send their health and safety reps through, they'll send their uh, directors through, um, and they see the value of the training very, very early, or they've had an incident maybe where there's been, you know, something really bad happened, they want training which is a little bit more than the tick box course which you'll get yeah. at um, maybe another provider. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, it's one of those things um, that I think uh, they could probably do well with, uh, getting a bit more involved with. But hey, look, of course I'm going to say that because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. this well, is business, I mean, man. It's not charity. <laughs> there's been a couple of uh, very violent incidences just in the mm. past, like not even two years that I'm here. And you'd think like if you don't know how to deal with that. Yeah. Um, the one thing I was surprised about was um, uh, that you talked about mental health mm. Um, mm. in the course. I'm like, why are they talking about mental health? This is, and then. I mean, mental health, besides in, in, in saving someone's life, mm. is something that people don't talk about, especially men. I don't know if... if um, and, and I know when, when uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, after the course, I saw the guy get hit by the car. And I was fine. Like, the blood didn't phase me. Screaming didn't phase me. Nothing. I was quite like, yeah, I can deal with this. But now, since that incident, when I cross the street while I'm walking my dog, yeah. I'm not just looking twice. I'm looking like... Uh, four or five times, which means something has stuck, right? Yeah, definitely. And and that's part of mental health. So it's yeah. not it's not just depression or anxiety. It's things that have yeah. an impact on you, um, and and then stick around. Like why do you, is that why you guys do it? Is it yeah. because you were in the army and there's guys with PTSD? Um, like wh why do you decide yeah. to include mental health? Yeah, in, in yeah, definitely. The so I think um, mental health is a is an aspect uh, of first aid, which is super important. Um, with the military, it's it's hugely overrepresented, and I think that's because of the experiences that people have, um, both you know in training uh, and of course in in, in uh, operational environment too. Um, I've been involved uh, with a charity for a number of years. I actually just finished it with it earlier this year after 1,600 consecutive days, the No Duff Charitable Trust. Um, absolutely incredible initiative going through and looking after, uh, well, any, any, any service person, um, obviously. But, um, yeah, absolutely incredible experience. The reason why I've incorporated it within the topic of first aid is because, you know, um, for myself, I mean, uh, I'm completely unashamed to put my hand up and say, uh, there's been things that uh, I've, you know, been through that I've put my hand up for as well. Um, mm. And actually, the first time, uh, one of my brothers from another mother, um, it took him to come through and say, "Hey, you actually have a problem, bro. You know, mm. um, you know, you might need to go ahead and, um, you know, talk to somebody about this." Yeah, and yeah, yeah. 
I, uh, pre, pr prior to that, I would have, if, if it had been probably anybody else, I probably would have looked at them and just cracked up laughing. Um, yeah, because they don't know it, what they're talking about. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, and also, you know, I was a very, very proud um, individual, and oh, I guess still am, you know. <laughs> it's uh, it's one of those things, you know, uh, you don't want to be looked at or seen as being weak or anything like that. Um, no. But the more I kind of go through this, the more I see of it, uh, and also the more people who I see succumb to it, and there's a reality of... The community that I'm in, obviously, as well. Um, you know, we have people who have, well, a lot of people who have taken their life, unfortunately. Um, we uh, we need to kind of deal with this in a more pragmatic way. Yeah. And the only way we're going to get about that is if we drag it out into the open. So sunlight is the best disinfectant um, for these kind of problems. We need to address it front on instead of, you know, just making it awareness. Uh, there was a wonderful quote from a friend of mine that I saw the other day on actually the Facebook. <laughs> um, but it was... Uh, awareness is great, but uh, action is final. Yeah. And that is something which resonates with me. Um, you know, there are so many people out there changing their little Facebook filters and running around a place and doing their little push-ups and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, cool, man. Okay, so awareness is great. Don't get me wrong. Okay, I'm glad that you did, uh, you know, 22 push-ups in 22 days and all that kind of stuff. But really, what does that do? So action uh, in my books is final. And, you know, going through, making people aware of the stuff, but actually getting them on board, pushing them in the right direction, making them aware of these things is so important. Now, it's a tiny little part of the course that we run, but if that tiny little part of the course can go through and at least plant a seed, yeah. maybe encourage conversation, hell, here we are now. You know, yeah, we're, talking talk, about we're talking yeah, yeah. about this right now. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. so there's a proof in the pudding. It's resonated yeah. with you. Um, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, for sure. You know, and, and that is awesome. You know, I, like I said, no problems in talking about it, no problems in putting, you know, saying, you know, been there, done that, um, been through psych services, come out the other end, redeployed overseas, uh, spent a lot of time away overseas, been through some really gnarly stuff, um, coming out the other end, it's been great. You know, um, you know, I now have tools in the toolbox to go through and deal with things in a much better manner and also yeah. look after my friends, family and watch for those danger points. I, I think also that um, mental health is an ongoing thing. It's mm. not four sessions at a shrink and then you're sorted. Yeah. And um, like, I, like I said to you earlier, like for mm. sure, like I've had major anxiety and major depression yeah. in my life that I yeah. had to deal with. And I think the fact that I'm an extrovert mm. has hugely helped me because I just mm. talk. Mm. where a lot of people aren't. So just normal conversation is a challenge yeah. for them, yeah. but now you're, you're, you're talking about this. Yeah. Do, do you think um, specifically handling first aid or a life-saving situation yeah. sticks with, with you? And, and yeah, it can. Yeah, like, like I have a friend in South Africa that uh, he was attacked in his house and he shot the guy, mm. killed the guy. Um, uh, it was just a farm attack. And I phoned him afterwards, and my question was like, are you okay, man? You just killed a guy, you know? Yeah. And he was like, yeah, man. I'll shoot him again now if I have to. He would have <laughs> killed my wife and my kid. But what started happening to him is he started having dreams mm. where he'd, he'd get shot, mm. like he didn't survive the situation. Yeah. Um, so it's not always as uh, clear-cut what the, what the, for lack of a better word now, what the issue is going to be. Do you the think reaction, when yeah. you, yeah, the reaction, yeah. do you think if you save someone's life or you experience specifically that type of trauma that, that it, it, it's very impactful on you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, I just want to kind of make a bit of a disclaimer or um, whatever first is that um, I'm certainly no expert with regards to actual uh, the treatment of mental health. Um, I think that's very, very important to get across first of all. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I can share is, you know, from personal experience and also, um, you know, through the charitable trust that I was um, a part of for a number of years, um, 
mental health presented in a ton of different ways um, through a whole range of different experiences. Okay. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the first aid side of the house, yeah, definitely. Um, for me, um, I know what my little ticks are. I know what really bothers me. Um, and I also understand these things. Um, it's really funny when you say uh, when people survive, sometimes you might get these kickbacks or whatever else. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've had uh, incidents where people have lived. Uh, I've gotten through out the other side and then for days and days and days uh, afterwards, woken up uh, all through the night, literally been driving through the road uh, and seeing their faces like pop up literally in my eyes. Um, and it's, these people are alive, you know. It's like, yeah, yeah, they didn't even die. You know, goodness me, get your stuff together, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and for me, uh, you know, uh, I have my own tools of kind of dealing with this, but probably my best tool that I have is literally explaining the situation, just as we are, um, as we're talking about today, right now, um, and and kind of finding itself through there. I mean, like I said, uh, mental health presents in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, I've got some really good friends who've been on their own journeys, um, post-critical incident, you know, um, there's been some really bad ones over the years, and, you know, um, you know, in training, uh, in garrison, in uh, field environment, combat, and whatnot, and guys have done exceptionally well at looking after each other. But ultimately, if there is a problem which is persisting, that is just like a strain, a sprain, or whatever else you're dealing with with a busted bone, you don't sit there and try and walk that off. You've got to go through and yep. go to the doctor, maybe a surgeon, um, and go through your rehab. And you're you're damn right um, before what you said um, with regards to going through. It's, it's not one of these things where you're going to rock up and, you know, oh, yeah, um, I'm here for my four sessions scheduled with you. I'm going to go through and, you know, you're going to give me all the answers to the entire world. Um, yeah. The most successful, um, in terms of, you know, my own experiences, um, the best guy that I worked with was one who actually forced me to acknowledge my own kind of flaws, my own issues, yeah. uh, and acknowledge what had actually happened um, was bothering me. And then made me find my own answers to my yeah. problems or solutions. And that for yeah. me was like, wow. It was kind of like, um, how would I put it? it? It's sitting right in front of your face, but until you say it out loud. <laughs> I, I think, I think um, that's one thing. Like you said, this person gave you the tools. Yeah. Um, and I've been through, let's say years ago, through a slew of, of shrinks. And I would just walk out thinking like, um, no, this is not working. And yeah. then I ended up with someone like before I walked out, they would make me make a list, force me to make mm. a list. And if this happens this week, how are you going to deal with it? Who are you going to phone? Who are you going to talk to? How are you going to breathe? Whatever, you know, mm. whatever the situation was, they gave me the tools to sort it out. Yeah. And I think people must also know, like, if you see someone and it's not mm. a good fit, mm. find someone that's you know, a good fit. You've because... absolutely nailed it, man. Yeah, I, th I think that's a really, really, really important thing to acknowledge as well, uh, that if one doesn't work for you, don't give up. Don't lose hope. Um, you know, um, go out there, you know, talk to your friends, include somebody, your support circles, your partner, your family members maybe. The more we drag this topic out into the open, I'm not talking about being dramatic over every little thing which happens. You know, it's one of these things that if there are people who are having problems uh, and the first doctor doesn't work, yeah. um, let's go to the next one. Next Second person, opinion yeah. is a very, very real thing. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For and sure. I think I'm going to leave mental health there for now. No, that's cool. Uh, what's the future for BrackMed? Because every time I'm on your website, uh, there's a new course. There's two added since I, which yeah. is the forestry and the, the 
I keep saying backcountry, but it's remote yeah. locations, right? Mm. Um, which is the next? I'm doing that next for mm. sure. Um, what's in the future for you? Are you just kind of having oh. the same thing? Okay, so um, obviously we have um, we have a plan uh, in place, a you know, 12, 24 months, five and 10 year plan uh, sitting in place. Um, at the moment, uh, kind of moving forward, um, at the moment we have, uh, we are growing an incredibly strong team behind us as well. Uh, we have, uh, you know, people from all walks of life coming through the door. Um, all of us have experience in um, hostile environments, offshore medicine, um, with some capacity, uh, and we're growing that team. So really, uh, I guess the sky's the limit in a sense. Uh, Pre-hospital care is always what we're going to focus on at this yeah, point. Yeah. But uh, So at the moment you do... Stop the bleed, you do basic life saving. What, what? Yeah, so um, we've got uh, uh, the stop the bleed course, we've got a central first aid uh, skills which uh, covers uh, decision making process and of course going through uh, doing CPR and defibrillation with legit uh, defibrillator models. Um, instead of just watching somebody do it or hearing about it, talking about it, we go through and we do it. Um, we have the remote areas uh, first aid course, which is, as we've discussed, we have forestry workers first aid, um, which is very much focusing on the specifics or the injuries most likely encountered with forestry workers and uh, a practical approach. Um, and Jeepers Creepers, yeah, that's what we have on the menu at, at the, the moment. moment. Yeah. Okay, and where can people find you? Instagram can, is? Yeah, definitely. So Insta handle is pracmed underscore NZ, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I, probably. I'm terrible They'll find the you if they do that. Um, um, website, pracmed. Yeah, website is www.pracmednz.com. Um, and that has everything there in terms of upcoming courses. It also has our products because we're not a one-trick pony. Oh, yes. Uh, it's all about, you know, the 360-degree solution of products, uh, which I design... Uh, largely uh, and are made proudly here in New Zealand uh, by two separate companies that we go through at the moment, Sabre Tactical down in Hamilton and Black Gear NZ, who make a whole bunch of different things out of various polymer plastics and um, Kydex, sorry, uh, plastics. <laughs> I'm going to get into trouble for saying that. Um, and yeah, um, so that's where we can kind of be found. Uh, we have a large presence on the Facebook, uh, obviously. Um, so again, Prakmed NZ. Uh, is where we can be found there and um, we have uh, a lot of information that we put up of block 60 seconds or si where I'm dropping a few hot tips for uh, young players in the game uh, and you know um, yeah it's just uh, it's all about going through and just providing those uh, those tips which might just uh, go through and help save somebody's life cool I think that's a good place to end it uh, if anyone wants to train on a dummy have blood squirting over your hands uh, and feel the pressure uh, Prakmit is the way to go Simon I really appreciate it man you guys are doing cool stuff uh, and I cannot wait to see what's coming next and uh, yeah you guys gave me the confidence to stop at accident awesome. scenes which I've done yeah. to phone the police Yeah. now I've done to, to see if I can, can help and I that's that's awesome man you can make a lot of people like more more um, prepared for everyday life huh? Jared thanks for having us on uh, today obviously uh, 36 people we've had come through uh, and provide anecdotes of saving people's lives uh, yeah yeah after your training right yeah after yeah, your training awesome um, so that, that is the best evidence that we need but it's about turning uh, people who would otherwise just be witnesses into responders and making sure that 
Uh, we move away from just sitting there, kind of looking pie in the eye uh, with a bit of a pale face and getting busy and saving people's lives because, you know, one day it might be me lying out there and I'd be hoping that somebody would come through and save me as well. So thank you for having us. Appreciate it. Thanks for getting the, Good getting stuff. the word out there. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, mate.